Awesome. So we're finally here and we're all together. Like, like a family, like a PhD family. Although um, I guess then if we're a family, Eric and I would be like long lost family members because we have just <laughs> met each other. <laughs> Like the, True. Uh, but the you know outside what? baby that shows up on episode 22, right? <laughs> like the mid-season finale where you're like, oh my gosh, the family's finally starting to come together and solve their problems. And then the outside baby appears and you're like, <gasps> dad, That's how really could you do that to mom? I can't believe this. And technically he didn't do it to mom. <laughs> oh, oh okay. Snap. Uh, Double snap. I'm trying to make sure I have a job. If this PhD thing doesn't work out, maybe I'll do some jokes. <laughs> <laughs> like, but it would be so funny if you guys have actually passed each other multiple times while on Cornell's campus. That is Wait, highly likely. It's, it's possible. Yeah. I mean, Erica, possible. what department were you in? I was in biomedical, but I worked in Epson mostly. In which, oh, Upson yeah. Hall. I mean, I guess I don't quad. necessarily wasn't over on that side of campus very often. Yeah. I remember one of my friends, Hyung, was marrying Laura, and one of his best men was from Carnegie yeah. Mellon, which is where I did my undergrad. And we were like, oh, cool, what year? Mm -hmm. 2008. Oh, I'm 2008, too. Oh, that's awesome. What mm. department? Mechanical engineering. Me, too. <laughs> and we both had this really awkward <laughs> moment of... Oh, we're in the exact same class in the exact same year, and neither of us recognized each other. Mm. In a class of 150 mm. people, we're just pretend this never happened. <laughs> yeah. Did I ever tell you about the one time? Um, it turns out there were two black. The two black people in the room really were related. Oh my gosh, that's great! Like we, like all black people, really knew each other. So I was at an interview for grad school, and there were only two black people in our in the room right and everyone's a candidate and we count we were applying and so you know people are just talking or at lunch and then you know people are like where are you from and this person was from louisiana and i said well you know i i was born in louisiana and he said oh i'm from this town and i said i'm from that town <laughs> and then he was like and then he just started giving names and i was like that's my cousin <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, and then it was just complete silence because we were like having a family reunion. It looks like all black people know each other because <laughs> we knew like our family. <laughs> so weird. Well, you didn't know each other because you found out when you're in class that you were related. True. True. Are you friends but now? But you know how black people give each other the nod? No. Okay. No. <laughs> we know. I don't even know what happened to him. Maybe I. Maybe he didn't go to grad school. Maybe he, or you know. Maybe you were like, maybe he, this is Highlander and there can only be one. Only be one. Yes. Only one <laughs> su successor from the Wayne family. Oh. She says mm. she doesn't know yeah. what happened, but really. She killed checked, him and absorbed his powers. It, exactly. If we check that enormous I meat my freezer in your basement, like, no. he might be there. Just saying. It's a poss possibility. Oh my God. <laughs> it's possible, but yeah, I don't know. Should we do an introduction? I think we should. Uh, I, this woman deserves all the introductions. Okay. Um. Well, I guess to start us off, um, so of course you're listening to PhD of his podcast. We're a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. Representing the humanities, I'm Dr. Zain Yao. 
um, representing logic and all that is good in the world, uh, Dr. Liz Wayne. Okay, I'm fine with being evil in that respect. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) I'm chaos. (laughs) Man, I love messing with Zine. She's all like in English and humanities, and I'm like, chicken, um, sleep. I represent just so many good things in the world. Uh, Like, I can't have chicken and sleep, too. (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't respect it. <laughs> but anyways, the Are the hapless bystander in this like conversation is our guest for today. I know the hapless bystander. She's just been chuckling all this time. So I'm happy to introduce you guys to someone who is just so amazing and who's probably gonna like stab me if she were in the same room with me because I'm about to brag about her. Um, so yeah, she's giving me this look. True so facts, um, uh, Dr. Facts. Erica Pratt. What? True facts. I would stab you if you were in the same room. But she continue, would so stab continue me. telling me how great I am, as Maxine Waters said. <laughs> <laughs> She's gonna re- you're gonna reclaim my time, reclaim your time if I don't do this appropriately. <laughs> oh <my God. sighs> don't reset my Wrap resume because I was there. Did you listen to the gospel version of reclaiming my time? <gasps> it is. Oh my God. The greatest thing. <laughs> So she was on the View. It gave me life. I will. I promise you guys. I will interview. I will give her the introduction. But Maxine Waters was on the View, and they were asking her how she felt about the gospel mm-hmm. song. And then while she was talking about it, the dude comes out singing the song. And- <laughs> that is oh amazing. That gospel album cover, though, that got like they just like Shirley Shirley sees this like pictures like put her face on it. Have you seen this? Yeah. Yes. I yes. Have. The album cover oh with like God. the fur coat straight mm-hmm. 80s throwback. I haven't laughed so hard since since that guy made that mistake with the Yahoo quote and said Trump was asking for a bigger Navy and said the other word Navy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I haven't laughed so hard on <laughs> Twitter since then. Yes, but anyway, one, she is so racist. good at diverting attention. Dr. Erica Pratt has a PhD in biomedical engineering from Cornell University. She was an amazing person in grad school. She was a few years ahead of me, and I got to see her just be completely amazing and just a great role model. Um, She won an NSF Graduate Research Fellowship Award. She was just really awesome, just amazing in research, Um, always there to give a great read. And by read here, I don't mean the books, (laughs) but I mean to tell you that you're doing wrong and that you are factually it's scientifically incorrect and here are all the reasons why <laughs> and it was just amazing um just a really great person to watch go through the program and inspires me by how she talks about science and how interested that she is in science uh, as she mentioned before she has a bachelor's in mechanical engineering from carnegie mellon mechanical Double major, mechanical and biomedical. Yes. Mechanical and biomedical engineering? Yes. Okay. I went to Carnegie Mellon back when no one knew what biomedical engineering was, and they were worried about your ability to get a job, because Carnegie Mellon is very proud of its engineering placement rate. So to major in biomedical engineering, when I first started, when the major had first started, really, you had to double major in a traditional engineering field mm. so mechanical electrical chemical materials etc i so see to do biomedical at that time you had to double major and we're definitely going to talk about that 
Yeah. And my favorite piece of information, she is from Oklahoma. She is a Sooner. Boomer Sooner. (laughs) And um, always makes me feel better to be in the room because I usually have to say I'm the only person from Mississippi I've ever met, but now I can just start saying things about Oklahoma when things get too real about Mississippi. (laughs) So I've always appreciated that. (laughs) So welcome to the podcast, Erica. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to be part of this really awesome podcast that you've put together over the years. I am proud of you guys, what you guys put together. (gasps) Yay. Yay. This is great. So, oh my gosh, where do we start? Um, So why don't you tell me about, I won't talk about baby Erica yet. So I'll admit for our listeners, that part of this podcast is to talk about how awesome Erica is. The other part is to get her to answer questions that she's never been able to answer for me. Oh, really? Um, She's basically getting interrogated now. Because she just always, like, sneaks away, or she's like, no, Liz, no. (laughs) I mean, to be honest, I deserve the right to still say no, because I never act right in public anyway. If you had higher expectations that I would be respectable just because you're interviewing me for a podcast i'm sorry sorry about it sorry not sorry (laughs) sorry not sorry all right well i'll start with some basic questions and i will work my way up to baby erica time (laughs) um (laughs) so tell me about about biomedical engineering um and how you became interested in that it's actually a really funny story I think my entire research career has been a series of serendipitous conversations with people, and Mm. perhaps my not necessarily giving everything the full weight and consideration that I would at my current age, but that was probably a good thing to be a little bit more spontaneous. So I had started out in baby Erica times, as you say, actually writing and (laughs) illustrating. That was uh, my main thing. Really? I did that while I was homeschooled. thought I was gonna apply to RISD or something and I eventually decided What's RISD? in my early teens um uh, art school like art yeah, Rhode Island School of Fine Arts yeah. yes they're pretty cool yeah. I had a dream that I would be an awesome artist and then I realized that artists have a really hard time making money and mm-hmm. baby Erica was a big fan of having money <laughs> so I decided that I needed to find a job that paid money and science seems like such a thing So I decided that I would become a science and maths person, applied to the Oklahoma School of Science and Math, um, attended there, and thought I was going to be a biology major. And one of the people on my floor had actually printed out a article, I think it was from Forbes, saying that biomedical engineering is the wave of the future, biologists are on their way out, Mm. this is this hot new field, and it pays (laughs) even more money than biology. And she was like, hey, this article... (laughs) It says that you should be a biomedical engineer. You should do this instead of being a biologist. And I read it. Yeah. A Forbes article that was two to three pages long at maximum. And I said, that sounds mm-hmm. like a great idea. So I <laughs> shifted okay. my focus to applying to biomedical engineering programs across the country. And then once I was on campus at the universities I had been accepted to, hearing people describe what the major entailed. And again, I'd started when biomedical engineering was very new, so every department had a very different vision of what biomedical engineering Uh would be. 
but in each of those institutions the vision was very exciting to me. So it confirmed for me that I was interested in continuing in biomedical engineering. And then Carnegie Mellon was my top choice mostly because of the enthusiasm of the professors when I was doing my campus tour, which is again not necessarily something I would put a whole lot of emphasis on at my current age, but not as baby mm. Erica was very excited by mm. my instructor's excitement. So that narrowed down uh, my options for me to Carnegie Mellon. And as I said, they want you to be able to get a job afterwards. So they said at the time, mm -hmm. I think they have a standalone major now. You have to double major in a traditional field. So the hardest part for me at that point is actually figuring out what my traditional engineering major would be to accompany biomedical engineering. Yeah. And did this actually function as two completely separate majors, or were there was there some overlap in the course requirements? There was, there was a lot of overlap uh, because biomedical engineering uh, had many different tracks. It wasn't an independent okay. standalone major at the time that I was attending Carnegie Mellon. It had tracks that were basically offshoots of specializations and the core engineering majors that Carnegie Mellon offered. So there were chemical engineering oriented biomedical engineering tracks, mechanical engineering oriented uh, biomedical engineering tracks. So there was a lot of overlap. Yeah. It was built to be that way so that when you were applying for jobs, you had courses that em prospective employers could understand. I took thermo, mm -hmm. I took transport, etc., yeah. etc. Et instead of uh, very different nomenclatures that existed across biomedical engineering departments at the time. I remember when I first started at Cornell, I met other people who had majored in biomedical engineering at other universities, and we literally had no course overlap whatsoever. <laughs> so I can imagine None. how challenging None. it would be for employers trying to hire biomedical engineers at the time, because depending on what university they were coming out of, they could have a completely different training than another university. So I think Carnegie uh -huh. Mellon was smart in emphasizing that you have a structure and root in a more traditional engineering major that has established coursework so that employers can understand you and figure out where you would fit in in our organization. So were there yeah. any unexpected benefits from choosing to the mechanical engineering um, double major? Like, do you find that that speaks to like your current research at all or? It does. Actually, a lot of things that I do are an intersection of mechanical and biomedical engineering. Uh, my PhD was in biomedical engineering, but I worked in Brian Kirby's lab, who is a full professor now in the mechanical engineering department at Cornell. Mm. And he was focused on <coughs> microfluidics, and basic fluid mechanics is something that's obviously something that mechanical engineers need to know uh, coming out of bachelor's. And being able to apply that at a now micro scale was very helpful to have that kind of mechanical engineering background and intuition. I also found cellular biomechanics to be very interesting. I did some research in undergrad um, in Phil Duke's lab, and he's a cellular biomechanics guy. And it was really cool to see my mechanical engineering classes that didn't necessarily have biological components being applied to a biological question. So I could really see even at the early stages of my mm -hmm. degree where those things could intersect. And that was always interesting to me, not just the genetics of the cell, which is something that I think people usually have in their mind when they think of what is a cell doing. They're thinking of the instruction manual right. telling the cell to go do X, but how does the cell interact yeah. with its environment? How does the environment affect the cell? Those are questions that always excited me, and mechanical engineers actually have a lot of utility in that intersection. 
Yeah. I, um, so one, when you were talking about what advice people were giving you going into biomedical engineering, I just started laughing. I'm not sure if you heard yes. me laughing oh, yes, I definitely. <laughs> over that because it's, and it's not about you in particular, but this narrative and, you know, I don't really think that a lot of that has changed. Oh no. I, like the, the biomedical engineering field is really was entering developed. High school was this field is going to blow up and engineering in general is great because all of the boomers are about to retire and here we are uh, X decades later. I know and they're boomers still hanging on for dear life. <laughs> it's like they're zombies just holding on. <laughs> like holding on articles man every year talking about the wave of employment opportunities when boomers oh, yes. retired engineering As, yeah like, especially you, in higher education right? like since i was uh-huh. 15 and i am older than that yes <laughs> yes non-trivial about and it hasn't changed so yes there's there's a lot of salesmanship and trying to get people to go into certain majors i don't necessarily know any other major is different especially for something that requires a lot of upfront training you're always going to be limited by the senior class ahead of you mm-hmm. retiring to make room yeah so i think boomers never retiring is a problem across fields not necessarily engineering specifically yeah yeah and um just thinking about how like a lot of the like biomedical engineering in particular the the research is thriving, but the professional, like the industry jobs are not thriving in the same way, such that you can't really go from a bachelor's degree in biomedical engineering and get a job. They exactly. actually might still prefer the mechanical or the chemical mm-hmm. because there aren't, you know, developing how to make an ear out of an apple or some other, you know, <laughs> biomaterial is not, it's still research development and it's not quite something that is commercial yet. And I think you're seeing because that translation isn't there yet, this degree doesn't have the value that quite the value yet. And so I, it's funny because at Penn, Penn's my biomedical engineering program, which is like a pre-med. They're like, I want to look cool. Again, everyone's been told biology is going out. No one wants to do biology. You're boring if you do biology. Don't do biology. You're not going to get to med school or any school. Hmm. And so people were taking up biomedical engineering as like a cool pre-med major to do. That was still like, not biology, but some biology, but not like hardcore was like the impression <laughs> that people kind of got. <laughs> so it's, it's so interesting how things have changed. Um, you know, at Cornell, I was a physics major. And so, so I didn't really know what biomedical engineering was. It just sounded like people were sounding elitist to me, actually, when they were trying to describe <laughs> why engineers were better. But um, yeah, it seems like you had a really good experience. At, at Carnegie Mellon. Yes, it was really great to be able to combine those two majors and also to be involved in research at a very early stage. And at every level of my research career, I've had people who were not only mentors, but were coaches and relentlessly believed mm. in me um, and encouraged me to continue, which was really important when I was applying to grad school because I was not the ideal graduate school candidate. I barely had a 3.0 when I was applying for schools. Um, My strongest selling point was my extensive research experience, which is more common now, but I think at the time was unique to have done research since high school. 
which was what mm. the main selling point of my application was, but that's still a challenge when you're applying to the institutions that I was applying to. And really having mm -hmm. mentors who are willing to call, panhandle, and say, she's great, <laughs> please go find her mm. application in the garbage where you threw it based on her grades and GRE scores. <laughs> and reread it because she's actually valuable. And that's literally how I got into Cornell. Actually, I had a twit, tweet, um, series of tweets on that topic, how I got into Cornell and University of Washington for grad school, primarily because my m mentors were willing to call and say, she's a non-traditional student, but she's strong. And you should give her application a second look. And then there were mentors who were willing to pick a non-traditional applicant, which is dicey when you're picking a graduate uh -huh. student. You're making a several year long investment in someone and it's very tempting to go with the cookie cutter metrics even if we mm -hmm. have extensive data yeah. showing that those cookie cutter metrics don't really inform success. Yes. No, they do not. No. I'm really <laughs> glad you brought that up. Can you talk about, you mentioned mentoring versus having a coach and what do you think that, could you explain what you mean and what the difference is? Sure. To me, mentors can have varying levels of interaction with their trainees. A mentor's job, especially at the undergraduate level, for example, when I was doing research experience for undergraduates, is to pick a project of appropriate size and scope such that it can be executed and the student will learn something. So you're not spending the summer scrubbing glassware, for example they get uh -huh. a taste of the research experience, they have an opportunity to interact with your lab. It, I don't necessarily see a mentor, especially interacting at the undergraduate level as having a lot of in-depth hands-on time. You're usually leashed under a graduate student or a postdoc and you interact primarily uh -huh. with them. And then the mentor interacts primarily with that trainee to inform how you're doing. My experiences were a little bit different in that I had coaches and these were mentors who were willing to come into the lab, sit down with me, troubleshoot problems that not, were not necessarily great uses of their time, especially during grant season, which is usually when REUs are, and uh -huh. really <clears throat> reiterate over and over again that you have strengths in these certain areas, you should think about continuing in these fields, I'm happy to support you, please keep me updated, and then we'll follow up to say, give me updates. How's your career going? Mm. Because Liz knows me, I don't like to brag about myself, and that is one of she the worst traits to have as an academic, because academia is 95% about bragging about yourself or <laughs> anybody who will listen. And I Cornell luckily taught had, me that. Yeah, I luckily had coaches who were willing to literally send me emails, send emails to their undergrad that was only there for a summer, and say, hey, what are you doing now? What are your updates? Send me your new CV so that when you're applying to things, I can write you letters of recommendation. I think they were that wow. invested mm -hmm. in my ability to succeed, and that is something that's exceptional. That's not... It standard is. for a mentor. It's not required for a mentor even, but it's really great to have when you experience it because it makes you have a positive voice in the back of your head when you have that negative voice saying, I'm not sure if I can do this. I don't really look like anyone around here. I don't have the same life experiences as everyone who's trying to do mm -hmm. this. I don't have the grades of everyone else who's trying to do this. I'm not quite <laughs> sure. I should be here 
to have coaches who are willing to push all of that inside and say, no, I'm an expert, I'm a professor, <clears throat> I have trainees, I know what success looks like, and you look like success, so don't listen to that. Yeah. That is incredibly important to have if you're a non-traditional uh, person who's not going to make it by cookie cutter metrics because there's so many ways to tear yourself down by comparing yourself to others who are in the same race as you that you really need people who are willing to say hey I'm several levels above you and I know what it takes to succeed and you yeah. have that mm -hmm. so don't quit I am so here with you oh my gosh this is resonating so much with me Erica um I'm going to ask one more question, Zion. <laughs> Don't apologize, man. I'll ask multiple questions, but I, I know I feel like I'm just, like, going straight in. But <clears throat> I had a similar experience, actually. And what I was – I'm hoping that you – can you talk about what it was like when you were applying to grad school? So for me, I didn't – I also didn't have a very high GPA. But I did a lot of research, and I knew where I wanted to be. I knew that I wanted to be at a top 10 – like institution I knew I wanted to be like my brain my my internal ego felt like I was really smart mm -hmm. and I needed to be there but I knew that my grades didn't say that mm -hmm. and I knew that people around me weren't exactly also telling me go to grad school and I found that it was a in big internal struggle for me to even put myself out there to say I deserve to be here when I felt like all the statistics and the people around me were saying like, maybe you shouldn't be here. Exactly. And so I'm curious if you can kind of talk about what that felt like for you, like, like senior year pushing to do something that was like totally not what people were expecting you to do, what that feel like, and how did you get through that to actually submit the application and do those things? I think submitting my applications was a little bit easier because I did have so many people in my training before who were actively saying, you can do this. You are absolutely what we need in grad school. You can succeed. So I, my stress wasn't about whether I could do the work. I was very much of the mindset, I know I can do the work if you would just get out of my way and let me get into the lab. I know I can do this. <laughs> And uh -huh. part of that was because I had coaches for years who said, absolutely, you can run this race. You are as good as grad students I have in the lab now. You should absolutely go to grad school. It's going to be a challenge and it's going to be a fight. And I think another important part of managing my stress levels when I was applying is that my mentors were not just, you can do the work, but they were also honest about how the deck was going to be stacked against me. I had PIs who said, you're a black woman you're going to have to advocate for yourself mm -hmm. twice as hard, mm -hmm. jump twice as high. This is just a fact. Um, when I was in training, I was very poor at presenting my work. I was very shy. I didn't like discussing my research in a public setting. And I remember when I was at Cornell, uh -huh. um, my mentor, Itai Cohen in physics, was relentless about making me practice. Ooh. He said this is a... Itai is a... Sorry, we probably shouldn't name names like this, but it, I feel you now. Itai I understand. <laughs> such a great mentor, and he just laid it out. He was like, you're a black woman. You need to be able to communicate clearly and forcefully your work. This is something critical not only for scientists, uh -huh. but especially for you because you aren't what people expect a scientist to look like. And I improved uh -huh. so much from that. And when I was applying to grad school, my mentor at the time looked at my list and said, I will fight for you. I will make the phone calls. I will write 
the recommendations as strongly as I know how, but you need to be prepared for the idea that you're going to get rejected from every school on your list because I had a very aggressive list. And because I had that mm -hmm. balance of you can do this, but you have X, Y, Z hurdles to overcome, I felt like I had a battle plan. It's like, okay, I've got mm. this in my gear set that makes me strong, and then I have these mountains to climb, and how do I dress those as clearly and convincingly as possible to say, hey, I don't have the grades that you're expecting, but I have all of these other great qualities and mm -hmm. you should overlook them. So it really felt like I was going to war against the admissions process. I didn't really ever feel like I yeah. didn't deserve to be in those places. I felt that the criteria didn't understand a person like me and I needed to figure out a way to explain to them that I was exactly the kind of student that they were looking for. Mm -hmm. And having yeah. mentors, both PIs, but also the grad students and postdocs who mentored me who are also incredible and also advocated and read over my applications and read over my letters, wrote amazing letters for me. I just had such a great support network at the point what I, where I was applying that it just felt like a battle that had to be won, not because I wasn't worth it, but because that's just how life is. And I think that's something uh -huh. that black women get trained in extensively. <laughs> it's not you. This is just the terrain that you must conquer to be yourself. And that just felt like a very familiar territory to be in so it wasn't s super stressful in terms of do I belong here it was stressful in terms of will I get in because I had hinged so much of my value and self-worth and my ability to do research because that felt like the one thing I did well mm. so there are students who mm -hmm. graduating with 4.0s there are students who are doing honors theses which were gated by GPA so even though I was actually doing really great uh. research I could not get that honors research title because my GPA wasn't high enough mm. um, couldn't get the yeah. cords and the ribbons from when I was graduating so it really felt like I had failed at achieving all these other things that are marks of success especially coming out of undergrad and research was the one thing that I excelled at I really wanted that to be recognized. It's not that I didn't think it was, wasn't was there, it was that I wanted the world to recognize that I excelled in this one area and that made it okay that I wasn't great at these other things, that I was still a smart person, I was still valid as an engineer, I wasn't a waste of an admission slot. Uh -huh. you know? So I really just wanted to get into top institutions so I could say, see, I was worth this effort. I deserve to be here all mm -hmm. along. Um, not because I didn't think I was worth being here, but because I wanted other people to realize that I deserve to be there. Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. Thank you for sharing. Oh my gosh. I'm really <laughs> glad that people, I'm really glad that you had good mentors though. And I'm really glad. Um, I'm curious, when you got to Cornell, what was the environment like? So now you meet this big hurdle that you had applied, you put yourself out there, and you said, I am worthy, I am qualified. And now you're here, and now there's another hurdle of like, well, now that I'm here, I have also, it's like another road to prove. And I'm guessing, what was that like for you? So PhD Like starting your was, PhD program. And starting my PhD project was still fun 
because the project I selected had a really great postdoc on it, Jason Gluckhorn, who's a PA at Delaware now. Mm. And between him and Brian, I had just a fantastic mentoring team to try to get up to speed. Um, I did do my undergrad in mechanical engineering, but the level of coursework that I needed to take to try to catch up to where Brian's group was, it was non-trivial. So it was really good to have them there. They were available to answer my questions and make sure that I understood the topic. And I was able to apply a lot of the research that I had done in undergrad right away. So that really helped to bolster my confidence. Mm -hmm. I'd say my early PhD was probably very enjoyable. I liked taking courses. I liked working in the lab. I liked having the mentorship team. Uh, my thesis project was tough. My thesis project was tough. Uh, there's al there are always those projects where everyone secretly knows that it's like murdered 14 postdocs and counting, but no one talks about it. <laughs> yeah. So yes, that was, and they hope that the new grad student doesn't understand <laughs> what they're well, actually other saying. People yeah. knew. No one in my lab knew. It was really, it was tough. I was working on uh, a chemical method to release circulating tumor cells from our microfluidic devices after we'd isolated them. And that would have been pretty nifty. Shine a light, release your cells very easy and straightforward, except the chemistry was uh -huh. very difficult to work with. So I spent six years of my life on that project, and I really invested a lot of myself into that project. And unfortunately, I didn't ever get it to work out, which at the time was very devastating, but in retrospect is to be expected. These things happen in science. But I remember at the time it was uh -huh. very frustrating, and we had set up a teleconference with someone who was a surface chemist so he would know more about this, the challenges that I was facing. And he said, oh, yeah, I worked mm -hmm. on that for three years in my postdoc and never got it to work. Wow. <laughs> and that was the moment yeah. where I was like, okay, so I think I'm not ever going to solve this one if a person and with no a PhD one in service that. chemistry, he spent three years of his postdoc on this chemical mm -hmm. and couldn't get it to work. I think I need to wrap this up. <laughs> 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 so my later PhD yeah. was kind of stressful <laughs> but the early PhD was actually quite fun I really enjoyed that time in the lab where I really like just being able to absorb knowledge from other people and learn two new techniques and apply them and have them work out like that's a very gratifying thing I'm a very hands-on scientist so like uh -huh. taking a technique and putting it into my own hands putting my own spin on it and seeing things work out that's a very gratifying thing for me so I can't help but wonder um since I my understanding is like, I guess in science, like negative results are still results. Like how, how did you manage to maintain like this, the momentum to continue, continue moving forward, especially during the end of your PhD, given the fact that you were set up with a project that you were so many years into, but no one had ever been able to succeed in. Like, how do you, how do you manage to manage like what your, your goals and timelines are? Like, how do you manage to maintain your sense of spirit? That is an excellent question. So I think that is still a big area in science that needs to be addressed is how we deal with negative okay. results because it is still very much a thing that's swept under the rug and people will mention it at conferences. Oh, oh this doesn't work. X, Y, Z doesn't work. And it's gotten a little bit better. We have journals now that are willing to publish negative results, and, but it's still not necessarily a respected thing. Mm -hmm. rigorous exploration 
of a phenomena to report that it does not affect anything does not get scientists excited it's nope. not a thing or grant agencies it doesn't get yeah. grant agencies excited uh, yeah i think something. i saw some sort of like big review recently exactly to that effect like that the sheer percentage of like negative um result studies is like so minuscule and i think i as an obviously a non-science person this was made mainstream uh science communication mm-hmm to like just show like there's such an overwhelming bias in that oh, regard. Oh yes, there's very much an overwhelming bias. Uh-huh. So like, you'll see negative results if it disproves a really huge study, or if it's uh-huh. something that was uh-huh. very expensive, laborious, and time-intensive, such to kind of put huge warning signs in front of that moat and be like, please don't fall into this because this cost us two million dollars. But basic f- failures uh-huh. and negative results, like my thesis, it was not something that <laughs> we're willing to discuss and share with other people and I think that's unfortunate because science is mostly about negative results <laughs> uh-huh. oh <laughs> like god if, even so for much. a successful thesis if you string together everything that turned out well it's probably two years worth of work <laughs> but in between those two years worth of work is three to five years of iterations and failures and they make a nice retrospective story when you're a senior professor giving your um, retrospective on your career but it's not something yeah. that junior scientists really like mm-hmm. to discuss or publish so it was absolutely so it was really hard to actually keep my momentum and sense of spirit I was very much depressed at my end of my PhD and it was mostly just relentlessness I'm very stubborn about trying to solve problems and I continue to try to solve the problem but when you have so much of your emotional self-worth work wrapped up in a project that's not working even if you're giving it 110% it's not a smart 110% so when I go back and look at the experiments that I did now I would do them much differently, but at the time, I was like, I just need to get through this one wall, and then everything will be perfect, and my solution to that was like, if I bang yeah. my head at that one spot long enough, mm-hmm. maybe it will crumple, and unfortunately, science is uh-huh. much tougher than my skull, so I lost. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't know that at the time. I didn't have perspective at the time, because I was just so deep into the project that I really wanted it to work out. I'd spent so much time on it. I could see great applications for it. And I really needed someone to just pull me out of the pool and be like, this is over. We're cutting the strings. It's not you. It's the project. But you're divorcing this project. This project is mm-hmm. divorcing you. And our PIs never want to do that. Our PIs, you yes. think our PIs would be the one who would say time to cut the strings because they would have that perspective to know. But it's almost like they're almost as wrapped up in it in it as you are and they want it to work a lot of times it's not just your baby project but it's like their pet baby project that they're hoping that'll work and they're also yes, hoping same. that maybe it's your fault as a student and not that the <laughs> oh, idea God. itself is flawed yes they're absolutely projects that pis are very wrapped up in yes it's very painful my project was unique in that it had too many moving parts so it's kind of like a 
Rube's Goldberg device and that I would get one part of it moving and then everything else would spiral out of control and then I would fix the other <laughs> part that was spiraling out of control and then the two steps before would break down. So it always seemed like I was almost there. Like if I could just get everything to mm-hmm. fall at the r- all the dominoes to fall at the right time, it would work well. So my boss and I were both like, just doesn't make physical sense yeah. <laughs> we're just yeah. so close if we can just get this and this to play together we we could solve this problem everything it just never quite came together it was just always so tantalizingly out of reach there's some projects where you're like that's not gonna work just give up but this was one of those fleeting unicorn tail you're like, oh, I almost caught yeah. it. <laughs> Just a little How bit did longer. you get out? It's a very hard thing. Like, what you're describing is something that I also went through. I know all lots of grad students go through, and what they don't know is how to, what are the, it's almost like your, your friend is in a relationship, that person's not happy at all. Everybody knows it, and you're like, how do we, so how do you get out of it? How do you re- recognize <laughs> this is the time to get out, but, you know, move on? And especially, let me put it back in the context of grad school. Um, PhD students are trying to train, and the ultimate goal is to get your degree, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a point where you have fulfilled your requirements. You've learned what you need to learn. But how do you convince people, yourself, and the other powers that be that, okay, it's time to get my degree, even though I don't have a positive result because sometimes mm-hmm. the positive result is what really people view as you being having a successful PhD, right? I need papers which are from positive results. Yes, that it's difficult. In my case, the biggest <laughs> hurdle to getting out was myself. Um, my PI mm. was very reasonable in terms of you're here to learn how to be an efficient scientist. You're not necessarily here to publish a ton of papers. You're here to learn the mechanics of how to break down a problem and think intelligently and come to a result. And if that result is negative, did you prove it negative in a rigorous and scientifically sound manner? Yes, then you have fulfilled what a PhD is supposed to be. I, on the other hand, wanted all of the papers. I wanted the publications (laughs) with my name in front to show that I was successful and the biggest hurdle was really myself and to be morbid when I figured out that it was time to leave was <laughs> near the end of uh, my time there I'd finished my A exam and I remember I hadn't gone grocery shopping and I needed to go outside and I was just looking at my refrigerator and being very disappointed in myself that it was empty and I needed to go get groceries and I was like it would really just be nice if a car would hit me it would really just solve <gasps> okay. all of my problems if a car would just hit me right now and I would be okay with that. And I remember about 20 seconds after that, maybe I'm depressed. <laughs> oh my God. Oh God. Yeah. So, yeah, I think so, Erica. <laughs> so hopefully other people, if they learn anything from listening to me, is to be a little bit more self-introspective and realize that you're spiraling earlier than in my case of wanting to be hit by a car. But at that point, I was like, oh, okay, I am in an unhealthy place and I need to fix this and I need to leave. And that's what I told my PI. I was like, I need to leave. Can't stay here. I'm miserable. This is not healthy. And he was like, I agree. So let's make a plan for you to get out of here. Mm. Let's I always liked your advisor. Post. 
for how you're going to execute this plan, get your escape hatch, move on to the next stage. You've accomplished what you need to do to get a PhD, and now it's time for you to offload this baggage and move on to the next stage where you can be successful. Um, you need to get away from this. Yeah. And I was still a little bit in denial. I was like, oh, maybe I can like figure out something else. Maybe I can do X. Maybe I can do Y. I remember when I finally finished my PhD, there were lots of people who were congratulating me on escaping. And I was like, you don't understand. My PI was like, you are defending. I don't care. Put stuff together. Make a presentation. <laughs> I've already signed the form. You are leaving this place <laughs> because you're going to do great at the next stage. Uh -huh. I am not going to allow you to keep killing yourself at this. You're out. <laughs> so if anything, I got firemen's carried. Yeah, I remember I was at her defense. Um, but yeah, it was um, really interesting. And then you're like, yeah, so I'm leaving in like a week or something, which, you know, I actually I had a similar experience. I, I was, what? A week, I left two days after I defended. Yes, it was very <laughs> quick. It was very quick. Um, I wasn't surprised, actually. And I actually did a similar thing. Um, people didn't really know when I was, I was so done. I just, I just left. <laughs> I just left and people were upset. Like, you didn't tell me you were leaving. I'm like, well, I told you, but also I just don't have the energy to say goodbye like a million times. And, mm -hmm. So you ghosted yeah. everyone? <laughs> I was being selfish. I'm not, honestly, it, if you were in my daily life or even my monthly life, then you knew I was leaving. Mm -hmm, if I hadn't yeah. seen you in like two or three months, then you probably didn't know. And I'm not upset. And if you're being really honest about it, you weren't upset either that I had left. I think it's something that's not acknowledged enough is finishing a PhD, even if you finish checking all the boxes that you wanted to check, is a traumatizing experience. Finishing Definitely. a PhD yes. is tough. It's mm -hmm. emotionally and mentally exhausting to finish yeah. your PhD. And I think... I think it was a PhD comics. It was like theses aren't <laughs> finished; they're abandoned. Like it was very. It feels very yes. much like that. <laughs> Even for people who have succeeded at most of the things they want to do, it doesn't quite come together. It's this golden halo moment where you're like, "I am wonderful. Please come back." Yeah. And the glory of what I've accomplished, you're actually kind of out of gas at the end. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. I totally relate to that. I was so burned out. Like I just was I was sleeping like over do a dozen hours a day like Absolutely. there's some like it was not just physical exhaustion like it's like my soul was exhausted exactly um, you've just given <laughs> yes. your heart and soul for however many years to a project and it just never finishing a, a thesis just never feels big enough for how much effort you put into it it feels like there should be more emotional heft to the action but there's just never enough to really validate how much effort mm -hmm. that you put into it you shake hands you get the forum signed maybe there's a party but it just never feels big enough if you know the blood yeah. sweat tears that you yeah. put in i was going to say that this this reminds me of a conversation that liz and i had and we coined this phrase that i was like we should use this for a podcast sometime which is uh postpartum dissertation depression <laughs> mm. do you remember this one that's excellent mm. excellent yeah i do i do <laughs> I do. That could be a Twitter tash hashtag. Please exactly. About your postpartum it, dissertation. It really depression. could be. <laughs> I, I fully second it. Yeah, because I do think I was so tired 
that I people were upset with me and I wasn't I didn't I didn't care, which is usually not my MO about these types of things. But I think I was just so tired. And, um, you know, this is a good question to ask you, too, because it took me, you know, I had projects that worked and I also had a baby project that just did not work. And at the end, kind of realized there was a it was one of those a lot of people have actually tried it, but no one says they failed. And other labs were smart enough, quote unquote, smart enough to have abandoned that, you know, after a year of work, whereas I've been doing this for five years and like over 400 surgeries into it. And, um, and so my, I had this vision of being, my vision of success in grad school was papers, multiple papers, just like, like a marathon that I had finished successfully at the end and I'm like clapping at the end and I'm like high-fiving people and I'm like taking these awesome pictures you know Mm -hmm. and I was just so tired and burned out and also my thesis wasn't what I thought it was going to be and in the way I felt I wasn't proud of my thesis because it wasn't the thesis that I wanted exactly exactly you have a vision it's like parents who yeah it's like parents who project on their children of how they're going to grow up to be perfect and then they're disappointed because you didn't they didn't you don't meet that expectation that is almost exactly how PhD students are with their thesis and you know I knew it was a thesis thesis I knew I earned my PhD I really just wanted you to be better I just really wanted you to have this extra thing and I really don't know why you just couldn't do that for me I don't know why it was so hard why? for you. I tried so hard. I did everything. <laughs> to just give this for me after all that I have sacrificed for you, Thesis. The least sacrificed. you could do is be perfect. <laughs> right? <laughs> this is yes. the least you could do for me. So even, yes. even if your thesis is objectively a success, I think most grad students are still not happy for it because you have this overwrought expectation of what perfection is. Mm-hmm. And science is not about perfection. Research is not about perfection. The PhD process is not about perfection. It's learning nope. <laughs> how to be a competent researcher. And there are going to be missteps and bumbles along the way. But that's not part of your beautiful vision of what graduate school is. And it's like you sail in mm-hmm. on your golden kayak and you have your like shiny pipettes and the beautiful research flows out and everything that you write is like gold on paper mm-hmm. and people just read it to themselves as spoken word poetry because it's so <laughs> and your conclusions are so clear and so crisp and so beautiful and framed and it's spoken great word. you have all of these hopes and dreams and then you have a paper where you're like oh, nothing can measure up to what you hoped so really grad students are their own worst enemy in terms of perfectionism but grad school selects for perfectionists mm-hmm. they, yeah they it took the... me six months to accept my to accept it and even i just I, I i i'm smart enough to listen to other people so i understand like and i knew that i earned my phd and everything had worked but i had this like disillusionment about the process and about like how it ended and about my final product that it took me a while to stop focusing on that product as like meaning more than the actual fact that I have my PhD and I was awarded my PhD right like that I passed all the hurdles and I was really concerned about like how far I passed that hurdle like my own personal hurdle versus like or it's yeah exactly exactly I remember when I had first finished I would gave a presentation on my thesis work to 
the research groups that are working in pancreatic cancer. And I remember these grad students were like, oh my gosh, you had papers in the first couple of years of grad school, or blah, 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 like all these compliments. And I was offended. It's like, you don't even <laughs> understand. There's nothing good about this. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you compliment me? <laughs> yeah. It's like, were you not paying attention to my presentation? Otherwise, you would know what a failure I am. I can't believe you would say this to me. Oh my God, we're the and worst. It's a, it definitely <laughs> took some time now. I'm just like, yeah, I was considering what I was dealing with. I did pretty well. Kudos to me. But afterwards, yeah, it was it was tough to even talk about my PhD. And people always want to ask you questions about your PhD after you finish your PhD. It's like, don't, t- don't ask me. It's like people who want to know when you're defending, afterwards they want like a full dissection of the aftermath of battle. And you're like, I uh, uh. want to forget this. Yes, I survived <laughs> this battle, so I don't and have to relive it. move on. Uh. It's like, oh, is that like an open wound there? Let me stick my fingers in it. You tell me more about finishing this thesis it project? Let me, let me wiggle my fingers in there a little bit. Oh, does that hurt? You're upset? I don't understand why. Shouldn't that be fun oh for you God. to talk about it again? It's like, don't, don't talk to, don't, don't even bring it up. Other than to say that I'm qualified for a job X because I have a PhD. Yes, I have the PhD required to have this job. Check. Done. That's the extent of the conversation that I was interested in having uh-huh. when I first started my postdoc. Right. So, right. given your experience with the PhD project, um, what project are you working on now? And I hope that how's that yeah. how's that going? And also, uh, where did he end up after Cornell? So after Cornell, I started my postdoc at University of Michigan in Andy Rim's lab. He was actually a clinician who had been collaborating with my PhD lab to transition our technology to isolate circulating tumor cells into pancreatic cancer because there's not a lot of research applying lipid biopsy to that area and it's an area where it could have a lot of impact because pancreatic cancer is defined by the fact that it's detected almost exclusively in the latest stages. Mm. So over 90% of pancreatic cancer patients are stage 4 at diagnosis. So having a non-invasive method to detect um, cancer burden earlier in the process could completely change how we treat pancreatic cancer, which is not necessarily the case in other cancers where we have better biomarkers and better Uh care options, for example, prostate cancer, where PSA and age are pretty good at um, informing when a patient needs to start coming in for regular prostatectomies, uh, not prostatectomies, coming in for regular prostate exams. So you just want to chop it off. We come, yes, (laughs) we catch prostate (laughs) cancer fairly early now. And for most patients, if you have good health insurance, it's a chronic condition. It's a managed disease. So early diagnosis is not as critical there as it is in pancreatic cancer. So we saw an opportunity to make immediate impact there. And he had been collaborating with another grad student in my lab, and I got to see the research that came out of it. So I was already excited about the idea of working in the space. And he was excited about the idea of having an engineer learn biology under his guidance because he was able (laughs) to see how engineering could impact his work 
and how if engineers can be better educated on what questions to ask and what devices to design Mm -hmm. that we could really drive the field forward in ways that if you keep everything disparate and compartmentalized we can't Um, Mm -hmm. so I started working there and a year later he was recruited to MD Anderson uh, Cancer Center in Houston so I moved down to Texas with him and I've been here for about a year and I'm working on a variety of liquid biopsy applications in pancreatic cancer and is a ton of fun. It's so much fun in my postdoc. There are so many different wow. assays that I've learned, so many different techniques that I've learned. We have a fax in the lab. It's mind-boggling how, I love much, fax. how much data that I'm generating and the fact that I can generate data and my data makes physical sense which was a challenging part of my PhD where like the laws Mm -hmm. of physics were not being obeyed as far as I can tell (laughs) so it's really satisfying to have projects that obey the laws of physics and biology Uh and having so many resources available and being immersed in a clinical environment I've just learned so much in terms of how to communicate with clinicians how to understand biological questions how to communicate those questions to figure out translational impact it's been so much fun in this postdoc. Mm-hmm. So it's like you went from negative to positive in a ton of different senses of the words. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I really love being a scientist. So being able to generate data, interpret data, and share it with other people and have discussions really is what gets me up every day. And I'm able to do that here. And though my thesis was painful, it actually made me develop some very strong troubleshooting muscles which have come in handy yeah. when you're learning all of these different <laughs> techniques uh, and learning how to apply mm-hmm. them in ways that no one's applied them before so while if you asked me do you want to go back again and to spend seven years developing those troubleshooting muscles I'd be like no but uh-huh. they're useful <laughs> I use them every day yeah. <laughs> I'll solve problems and people That's be like awesome. how did you come up with that so fast I was like you don't even want to know how (laughs) yeah 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 do you ever find sometimes when people when people ask for your logic you start saying it and realizing that it's extremely complicated and then they get confused by your logic even though it makes perfect sense in your head and they see the out it's like they can see the output and they know that it's working but when they ask for the in-between logic they're like what that, that still happens in meetings with my boss. I'm like, what? <laughs> the result makes sense, but why did you decide to do it this way? And it's like, oh, because this, this, and this, and this, and if the wind blows southerly, and then like, the chicken lays three eggs <laughs> yeah. that day, you have to do this. <laughs> Obviously, like, I have years of experience. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, guy reading so. situations, and he's like, I'm not quite sure I would have made the same decisions, but I mean, it worked. So, okay. <laughs> right. I think that happens right. in all right. fields, especially if you have a situation where you have people trained in very disparate, desperate areas. So I'm an engineer. Uh-huh. He is a clinician who did a postdoc in translational biology. So uh-huh. just communicating in the same language on top of communicating, troubleshooting in the same language is entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I I work with a, a doctor, and um, I've grown to, to enjoy our interactions, but I think they're funny because usually it's like, 
I'm pitching ideas to him. He's like, that's not going to work. That's not clinically relevant. Nobody cares. Clinical but he doesn't mean like he doesn't are... mean it like that. He he, but he's just thinking very clinicians. Very like are like the science version of that Nigerian auntie who just is like you. <laughs> There's this hilarious tweet of a woman who had tweeted her Nigerian auntie to say that I've gained an inch and I need you to alter the bridesmaid dress and her auntie. Mm-hmm being as black aunties do it's like i'm having a good day today the dresses are made do not embarrass me like just (laughs) flat out (laughs) this is how it is yeah clinicians are kind of like that they're like that doesn't inform patient care so no which Uh i understand it's joining those locomotives is always difficult because clinicians are very focused on what is going to impact the patient it does this make direct inroads and saving people that I'm seeing die every day and they bring Mm -hmm. really critical focus Uh to problems where they're interesting engineering solutions that don't necessarily inform patient care and it's always good to have a clinician there to say people are dying we could save lives but you also need that exploratory creative research side because a lot of uh-huh. major research advances that have informed patient care are not because someone woke up and said I want to cure X they're doing fundamental basic research and discovered a phenomena that has made dramatic impacts in how we treat patients immunotherapy CRISPR Absolutely. PCR these are things that we didn't have a goal when we woke up of solving you know, I disease. still don't know what CRISPR is. I know what it is vaguely, but I just keep getting upset they left out the E <laughs> in CRISPR. It's like, right. I, and like, CRISPR is so important. It's so amazing. It's going to be like, it's going to fix everything. And I just keep thinking, they should have just like worked a little bit harder to put an E in there. Don't you think? <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, Zion. <laughs> Yeah, I've been it's an acronym. Of, oh, I know. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts about CRISPR recently. Yeah. Also, okay. All right. She's up. She's got this now. That's the. See, that's all. I. The only thing. I, oh wait, can't hear you. Yeah, there's a storyline on X Files about CRISPRing in alien genes. I think I don't watch X Files, but the other postdoc in my lab was very scandalized <laughs> at the misuse of CRISPR in this way. He's like that makes no sense a tv show gets science wrong oh my god what a shock like, what do they mean they identified alien dna what would alien dna even look like how are you gonna identify it by eye it's alien he was very very upset by the newest x-files storyline i know mm. so much about x-files i don't even watch that show i love getting so upset about science in shows <laughs> Like, I just get this self-righteousness of, like, I know the answer. Let me tell everybody. I'm mostly annoyed by movies that always make scientists oblivious or evil. Where they're like, what did you think would happen when you made this Tyrannosaurus Rex cannibal human hybrid and (laughs) unleashed it on the Earth? 
I don't know, because I could. I was just interested to see what happens. I was like, oh my gosh, we don't work that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Or it's a person who's There's like, so many, I think we like, that would work. my dog once, so I hate all humanity, and that's why I unleashed the cannibal Tyrannosaurus Rex hybrid <laughs> on the Earth. Like, there's never a reasonable scientist somewhere who believes in ethics of any kind. They're like some yeah. naive four-year-olds who's trained in biology but also understands like basic astrophysics yeah. and their discoveries their happen way too easily way too easily like if you're gonna mix three yes. different species that's not gonna happen in like someone's lifetime you know like it's not gonna be something where it really does give like one one scientist did it by themselves it's just unrealistic <laughs> well, it's always one scientist off. did it by themselves and all of the data is on one USB key. Oh yes, that's true. In a briefcase. Mm-hmm. Like every storyline where it's like, oh, this scientist has like cold fusion on this USB key and everyone's trying to steal it from him. It's like, did someone already kill all of the grad students, postdocs? people who drank coffee the undergrad with that guy, who's somebody's daughter the people who went son. to conferences that guy while he was bragging about the fact that he admitted cold fusion true 13 people <laughs> that were like one month behind him in the research but got scooped by him did we already murder all of these people and all this let's be real the tech the transfer team? office because the university's trying to make money off of this as well <laughs> <laughs> it's like that's not tech how transfers got that on lock yeah. Also, the idea of the solo scientist, brilliant scientist, is pernicious because it makes people not understand how teams are critical to how science mm-hmm. works. Yeah, really buttresses this brilliant white male scientist narrative that's been perpetuated for decades. It's like, oh, there's this guy in a room thinking really hard and solves all the mm-hmm. problems. It's like, that's not how... He's just like squeezing yeah, I was going to say that when you <laughs> described like the scientist as like this spoiled four-year-old, and I was like, oh, given some recent things happening in science, seems like some, some of them are spoiled four-year-olds, honestly. Oh my god. Some of them are spoiled four-year-olds, but there are a lot of scientists who aren't spoiled four-year-olds trying to reel them in, and you just never see those people given a voice in both in just entertainment, but also in media when people are discussing these really inflammatory things they don't necessarily seek out scientists that give the reasoned but boring answer they seek out a person who doesn't really work in that field who's willing to give the exciting answer Mm. it's like Uh no that wouldn't happen because we have laws now that wouldn't happen because there are minorities and women and indigenous people involved in science and we are all dedicated to making sure the atrocities perpetuated upon our persons are not repeated so no (laughs) Uh you would know that if you knew that there were women and minority indigenous scientists (laughs) if you actually acknowledged that we would existed then maybe you'd be slightly less concerned at this terrible scientists going to unleash horrible things on the earth because there are people who are both scientists but also these demographics that have received the pronged end of science applied wrongly and are dedicated to making sure that that doesn't happen again and I think it's really important that we pay more attention and put more spotlight on those people who are embedded in their communities and are 
trying to disseminate information and make sure people are informed and are involved and are invested into the scientific endeavor in America and the Western world in general. Um, but we still like the single solo genius scientist who's going yeah. to not have any ethics change everything. X on the world because there's no yeah. not a army of people behind him that are saying we don't ever want things like that to happen again. I think that's important to make people feel more comfortable with science. If you always have the stereotype that scientists kind of don't care about what happens to people as if scientists aren't people themselves, then mm -hmm. it's not surprising to see that the general public distrusts scientists to inform policy. It's not surprising you to see You are preaching the science gospel science. right now. Mm -hmm. Do you know this? <laughs> this whole podcast, you've just been given a science gospel. Well, the, the next verse step would be to make the gospel version verse. of the gospel, right? <laughs> <laughs> to bring it back to the Maxine Waters. Reclaim your <laughs> Reclaim your science. Science gospel. I will be your backup one, singer. I will have the. I'll be the one. To, I'll be your choir. You clap. I can't sing. Yeah. Shady church ladies. Don't worry. We got auto tune. We got technology on our side. We'll Don't forget to we have technology on us. So I think we should wrap up um, here, and we should ask you some fun questions. Okay. I thought Liz said that you the... like video games. Sorry. Yeah. I love video that games. That is okay. Question. Which which consoles and which games? Oh, oh, I'm going to be not a good person. I'm part of the PC master race. Oh my god. Yeah. Though Sorry. I did play a lot of Halo in college, I will admit I did play a lot of Halo. Did you have like the earpiece? Well, like, exactly. The she has a headset. No wonder she has a headset. <laughs> but yes, most of my gaming when I first started out was in MMOs, so I bounced around almost to all major MMOs that aren't WoW. Um, hmm. My favorite games right now are Crusader Kings 2, which is a grand strategy game. Still making my way through XCOM 2. Um, Tyranny is a really fun game where it's hilarious. Evil has already conquered the world and you're like a representative of evil and you have to decide how you're going to manage these various interactions oh, around nice. the world. Evil, or like okay. Liz would say, me, right? Go <laughs> <laughs> back to the beginning. It's a really fun spin on like the hero. I think that's tale. called a simile or a metaphor. <laughs> I'm trying to get through Mass Wait, Effect. a literal interpretation? But Mass Effect 1 is really tough to get through, and enough people have told me, given me permission to give up and go to Mass Effect 2 that I think I'm going to do that. But mm. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I, I guess, like, you've probably heard enough about it that, like, the, everyone's really disappointed with how the series ended or something oh, like that. Oh, I mean, all already know how it ends because endless Kotaku articles every day. Yes, yeah. Twitter complaining. Every day, how could they do this? People are like, the ending is not that great. Like, I already know just by osmosis what the ending is. <laughs> There's just so much Jeez. collective outrage. And I already know not to get Mass Effect Andromeda, because that's apparently like I know, a pox the, upon their house. It looks so ugly. Anyway. The animations were awkward from the few that I watched cutscenes on, for mm -hmm. on YouTube. But yes, I like playing video games. I don't have as much time to do it now as I used to. I mean, I didn't have time back then either. Probably why I didn't have great <laughs> grades. But let not grades stand in the way of GTA and Halo. Because yeah, hey, times. and okay, you were able to play that, and you're still in your postdoc right now. So 
obviously maybe it helped i don't know it, infor- it, in- it informed your cancer research i mean i feel like gaming is also useful because especially if you play with other people because gamer trolls are like literally exactly what's happening in the social slash political space right now yes and people yeah, are definitely. like what huh. do we do how do we deal with these people it's like you deal with these people all day every day for trying to do anything in any mmo or multiplayer context mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like there's mm-hmm. nothing new about this like how do you debate with these trolls it's like you don't you don't you, you don't let the you yeah. play it's like you play whack-a-mole if it entertains you you're like okay i've taken away five of your 16 base responses which one will come out next if you just want to mm, do it yeah. for fun <laughs> like oh, yeah, I think that's them. a great analogy. It's like when people keep asking us to debate trolls, and it's like, well, maybe exactly like if you're playing online, like you just turn off your headset because that's the way you're going to get through. Exactly. You, know? like you have to why? just win and just stop listening to them. Yeah, it's like you can't apply logic to someone whose whole goal is to just get on your nerves. Mm-hmm. You can't out debate them out of that. That's actually exactly how they have fun with it. So I feel like gaming is huh. useful in the context of not caring about people who try to troll me. Like people have tried harder mm-hmm. in more stressful <laughs> situations. Like when I'm rolling on that best in slot gear that I really want, and someone's trolling me, that is way more stressful than what you're trying to do to me right now. So I'm ready to fight people. Like if that dagger mm. is mine. That dagger. <laughs> <laughs> You guys can't see her. She, her hands were in the air. Failed. The dagger is hers. Lost the dagger when I tried to plus two it, and I really need it now. I need it extra <laughs> so I can plus two. And you're talking shit, and I can't deal with that. Versus now, when people try to troll you, me, I'm like, who cares? <laughs> this is not life critical at all. <laughs> so, if anything, what do you miss about Oklahoma? Hmm, what do you mean, if anything, shady woman? <laughs> okay, okay, I'll, I'll reset, yes. I'll reset. Okay, yes. what do you miss about Oklahoma? If, okay, what if you could transport for? one thing from Oklahoma to Houston, what would that be? The Sooners, I miss my sports team. I mm. love, 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 love Sooner culture. I love game day where we're all cheering to each other as we go about our business. Mm. I know some people are not big fans of sports obsession, but I am 100% on the sports hype train. Like, don't talk any smack to me during football season. Mm. Being in Texas during college football season is an ordeal, a straight up ordeal, let Mm. me tell you. (laughs) Uh The struggle Uh is real. Every time I put on my senior gear, because I'm dumb enough to still put on my senior gear in Texas. On for the whole day. I'm like, I don't care. It's a boomer sooner. It's game day. We're going to beat you. Mm. Except then we lost to Houston, <laughs> which was really upsetting. And then people wanted me to go out to a picnic afterwards. And I was like, we just lost to Houston. I literally don't want to see anyone's face today. I don't know what you're talking about. That's intense. Also, Oklahoma's Good great because the World Cup of softball championship is always in Oklahoma City. So... Oh, see cool. the best college women's softball teams duke it out for the grand title every year. Wow. So that was actually really fun to have in the city that I grew up in. So I miss that also. Wow. <laughs> Remember that time <laughs> we were at VMES and you were telling Gilda Barabino how I was like your 
life goals and I didn't hear any of the things you were saying, you were like so offended. Yeah. You were so mad at that me was hilarious. For, like, the rest of the conference. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I remember. Okay, so what she's talking about is that the at the time, Gilda Barabino was president of BMS, and I had actually already known um, Professor Barabino. And I was introducing Erica to her, and I just remember that after this conversation, um, Erica, we were talking to a third person, and Erica was saying, and Liz was just bragging about, like, she knows all these really important people, or it was something like that. And I was like, I spent that entire interaction talking about how awesome you are, and all you remember from that interaction was that I knew her. And that she already knew me. I heard the, hi, this is Erica, she goes to Cornell, and then I went back to eating my lunch, and apparently during she that did. time you were just raining praise down on me, I'm like, what? <laughs> I was trying, I was trying to net, it wasn't just to rain praise on you, I was actually trying to network. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> the corn on the cob was nicely salted, like I heard none of the things that you were telling me. I just knew yeah, corn the cob is so basic. Conversation. I was like, look at her networking with all these people. Ooh, look at I this. see. And I was trying to get you to network with her. That was the whole point of like, all right, I already know her. Yeah, I got a phone number. So bad. You're like, I was talking about you. And I was like, oh, were you? Sorry. I was. <laughs> that explains why Gilda was looking at me kind of strangely. She was probably like, are you going to like input on this conversation? Or are you just going to sit there while. <laughs> You weren't listening. Okay, that's help. That's hilarious. You were like, I was. You gave me like a fifteen bullet point overview of how great I was that you were telling Gilda, and I was like, I literally heard none of that. You could have been talking that's awesome. about. I don't know. You know what? I should so have. Would be equally believable. We'll talk about tennis shoes me. next time. <laughs> that was awesome. That no, I was doing my normal like networking. I have no idea. Trying to connect people. I was connecting, but, um, that's interesting. Okay. I, I, interesting how we, reflection, revisionist history and, um, connections and things work. Mm-hmm. So in this You're case now, go home and introvert. cuddle your cat. Cuddle the cat. That up. you didn't tell her about the cat that you kept secret from her. I know. This I mean, like, time. at least it wasn't as bad as I thought it was, but like, if you were there for a whole week and this is the first time you sent me a cat. Photo. Well, how often have you been around a cat? How many opportunities have you had to have a cat photo to send? Wow. Wow. A cat photo wow, you are taking oh. her side now <laughs> on this cat. <laughs> and at the beginning, y'all were like, oh, we don't know each other. We've never seen each other before. You can't monopolize cat photos. It's like that undermines the whole basis of your relationship if you're not getting the cat. No, photos. that's no. not fair. And she knows, like, she... I so sent the picture because so I know you like cats. This is the first picture I've ever even taken of this cat. She loves cats, and you're just going to be out here having a prime source of adorable This is the first cat like, picture I've ever taken, and I was like, this is for, literally <laughs> for thine. There's only one <laughs> video on my phone, and that is the one that just got sent to thine. <laughs> yes. In fact, you know how I have <laughs> issues with dropping things? It is pretty So great. my phone wasn't working none of the, like the, I dropped it so much that the cameras didn't work so I <laughs> and I and I still didn't oh, buy a new one because okay. it still like text and everything so I finally got a new phone like three days ago which means and then I took a cat video today so much pressure 
so much pressure. I, regardless, <laughs> I am very thankful for it. It's exceptionally you have, cute. Uh, you have this fat it's cat that can't get up because it's too fat and it's just rolling around his belly. It looks like someone yeah, who's like trying to, trying like. to do like sit ups but can't get it all the way. It's, it's just like it's already so <laughs> amazing. Incompetent fat cats are the best <laughs> because they don't know they're incompetent, so they like expect the thing to still happen. I know and they like, try oh, so hard, sweetie. No. They try so hard. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, cat videos, I, there's a cat, I live with a cat now, um, her name is Chloe, she's hilarious because she's the cat that, um, oh, so the girl, um, her family has tons of cats, and Chloe is the one that doesn't like any of the other cats, so they took the one cat that, like, can't stand the other cats anyway, and, like, wants to be by, wants to be by herself, and now that she's by herself mm. in our apartment, she, like, runned over everything. She, she kind of like, also I keep my door awesome. closed because I wasn't sure if I was allergic to her or not yet, but whenever I open it, she runs straight in and she checks out my bathroom and then she just like sits on my bed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she just runs Aww. in and then, oh, so that video. No, well, seriously. She locked her out. She's like, "How dare you, human?" I'll just see her looking at me kingdom. when I tried to help her like write herself. She got mad at me. She was. <laughs> well, yeah. Like if you're trying to do your sit-ups and you're like you're almost there, you know, it's just like you know, walking back and forth. Eventually, I'm gonna build my momentum. I'm gonna send you, you this video. Up, like, Excuse I'm me, see the video, because it's hilarious. And I was like, let me just like lift her up a little bit. It's like whoa. It is whoa. Okay, my surface is about to die, so we probably have to do like the exit thing, whatever exit yep. thing it is. Otherwise, you're gonna have no. a really awkward, just like I talk and then. <laughs> and Erica, she says she's never coming back, so we're all done. <laughs> but it was great while it lasted. Erica, do you have any final parting words for our listeners <laughs> after that whole cat saga? You didn't have this in the instructions. You know I don't do this. Oh, oh wow, I'm back to Elizabeth. You know Elizabeth. how hard I had to work to get to Liz? Elizabeth Celeste Wayne. I have hearty words. I don't know. Believe in yourself. Believe in the people that have supported you so far. When you can't do it, I've always been motivated by the fact that I want to prove that all the people who invested time and effort in me spent their time wisely and want to make them proud of what I've accomplished. But you also need to be proud of yourself. So you um. also need to learn to cultivate your own inner coach that tells you that you are competent, capable, and can achieve things mm. even when every other part of life tells you you can't. Which is especially true in science. Especially true in science if you aren't what people expect scientists to look like. That was beautiful. Dr. Pratt out. That's it. I don't got anything else. That's my best <laughs> shot. He scored. Shot my shot. That's it. It was nothing but net. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was good talking to you guys. It was, it was nice to meet you. you. Hopefully yeah, I make nice it out to, to Houston. Houston. Well, thanks so much. Yeah. I liked watching you sass Liz. So much. <laughs> I sass Liz all so the much. time. It was my second most favorite activity. 
It's like a cat trying to like attack a bouncy house. It's like a victimless crime. You can't get any traction. It's just like just I just keep coming back. I'm like that little lab puppy that's like, why doesn't the world like me? And, and like, yeah. Yeah, probably would be accurate to describe our interactions. Like the dog that wants to play with the cat, and the cat's like, I'm just swishing my tail. That doesn't mean living that your I best cat right tail now. life. Just mm-hmm. me living my best cat living tail my life. Best cat tail life. <laughs> it, I, it's just such an interesting interaction. <laughs> yeah. I know. For our listeners, live your best cat tail life. But you keep talking to me. So it works. This is potentially abusive. Anyway, let's yes, reclaim your time. So this was PhD Divas. Live your best cat life. Cat yes. tail life. Reclaim your time. Reclaim your science. Uh, thanks for listening to us. Please subscribe and review us on uh, Please iTunes, enable my SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And take care of yourselves. <laughs> Erica looked at me like. (laughs) (laughs) Also follow me on Twitter. Yes. Underscore. I guess uh, we will include links to all your different things. Just send us send us whatever you want. Bye. Okay. And pause.